That's how me and Robin actually became friends because I would only say we, like we. What a basis for a friendship. That is not. <laughs> you know you're in grad school. That's your aspiration on that <laughs> semi. All right, y'all ready? Were we supposed to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Gradlings podcast. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> just, we need sound effects on this podcast, I swear. I've been Justin is very happy to be here. Yeah. As you guys know, my name is Bowden. And I'm Justin. That's yeah, Justin. <laughs> That's Robbie over there. In I'm case. Robbie, right. Yeah. And we are your hosts. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Man, the semester is like really uh, down, This one is, uh, it's like a almost over. We have what, like three more Mondays left, I think, before the oh, end gosh. of the semester. Yeah, we have Thanksgiving break. And then yeah, dead week, and then dead week is when I'm literally going to die. I have so much to write before then, but it's going to be great. Um, you haven't died yet. I haven't died yet. You I have spent not. ten weeks telling us. <laughs> I have spent. I have this this season, this semester. I've been talking a lot about how difficult grad school is, but. It's, it hasn't been so bad. It's been very therapeutic for you. Very therapeutic. It I didn't need therapy. It was just fun. I mean, like, everybody's he going through a hard time. He needed therapy. I did not need therapy. I'm good. Tommy, um, does he need therapy? Uh, yeah. No, I did not. Anyways, <laughs> so it's Tommy does know everything. So as he you does. guys know, Gradlings is a podcast dedicated to graduate student research. We're uh, finishing up our very first season. This is our sixth episode. We have one more episode for sure, and then we're gonna wrap up this entire season. It's been it's been so much fun, guys. Like it's talking about research, talking about graduate life, school, graduate school life. life. So today we have an awesome guest. Uh, please stay tuned. And after this break, we're going to come back and we're going to introduce you to an amazing linguist here at the University of Alabama. He is going to talk to, about, uh, talk to us about his research on his dissertation, right? Yep. Very, very yep. Muy, muy bien. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Today we have in the studio Mr. Tommy Carlton. Yes. Tommy Carlton. Nice to What's here. up? Thank you. Very excited, or Thomas, as we call him. Thomas. Thank you. Because it is the French department this really? week. Yes. Finally. Monsieur Thomas. Monsieur Thomas. Monsieur. 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 Oh, when you I've say been really saying quick, it wrong. Listen to yeah? you, you, you leave Monsieur. the R off usually. The Monsieur. 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 Monsieur Thomas. <laughs> Tommy Carlton. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> so. He is the unofficial symbol of the French department. Oh, really? For his okay. expansive Y'all time here at UA. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wait, it is, it's Tommy. It's Tommy. Everyone knows Tommy, but you'll never see him. He's like a ninja, a French ninja. Tommy completed his undergrad at Ball State by 2007, double majoring in French and Japanese with a minor in Chinese. Wow. Oh, told you. Uh, he joined the UA program in 2012 in 2010 and completed his master's in applied French linguistics which is the program I'm in Tommy (laughs) is finishing up this year with his PhD 
Hopefully. Yes. And he's here today to talk about his really great research. I'm very excited because we also, this will be the first episode not truly focused on pedagogy and instead more mm-hmm. specifically historical linguistics. Oh, yeah. Specifically historical mm. French linguistics. Oh. oh, this is like right up your alley, Robin. Can you oh, say like right up your, like, rue instead? <laughs> Right up my (laughs) (laughs) Tommy, just tell us, uh, if you don't mind, just a little bit about... You're working on your dissertation right now. Uh, We think that it's super cool. That's the reason why we wanted to bring you in and have a conversation about what you got going on. So please tell us, just like a little summary for us and for the audience, uh, what is your dissertation about, basically? I mean, the, the general gist that I give people is that I'm looking at the history of negation throughout the French language, because... If you look at French and compare it to Spanish or compare it to Italian or Portuguese or even uh, a less well-known language such as Catalan or Occitan or something like that or Romanian, Mm -hmm. French negation tends to be different. It doesn't follow the the modern evolution, so to say, uh, of the Latin negation Mm -hmm. like Spanish does where you have the pre-verbal no or something like that. Or in Portuguese, and my pronunciation is terrible, but like the now in Portuguese. So you have the ne pas in French and why Uh that came to exist why pas specifically went out because it turns out there were a lot of other possibilities that could have happened and then where is it going in modern French because you find a lot of people don't even say ne especially in spoken French it's almost very rare to hear in some in hmm. some registers so very cool and so you are taking more of like a theoretical approach not you're not doing an applied thing right where you're going right. out and doing interviews or anything like that no I'm looking through a lot of databases and things like that looking through um, older dictionaries older publications wow. older literature and finding use cases and trying to figure out exactly why it changed because hmm. f- it's well documented that it changed okay but why it's ha- it's happened there's some information on it but it's not as concrete as it could be very very cool it's very yeah it's specifically to me Tommy's research is very different because I think you're proving or you're demonstrating that French is a language that is demonstrative of the Jesperson cycle correct yes and could you give a brief, brief overview, if possible, of the Jesperson cycle. Uh, Briefly, it usually is summarized in three different steps. So you have an existing negation pattern in a language that starts to weaken in its understanding by native speakers. So it feels like it needs emphasis to make it stronger. So the second step is that people add additional words or additional syllables or things to emphasize the negation on something. And then what happens over time is that that actually takes on the new word or the new syllable or the new uh, intonation pattern takes on the negation itself, where the original loses its concept of negation on a more morphosemantic level. And so what happens basically is that that new term or that new suffix becomes the only required negation in the language. Wow. And this and what happens, the reason it's called a cycle is because this tends to repeat itself. So the new negation, a few decades or centuries later, might undergo a similar process. Okay. So for example, like right now, it's going through the process of you don't have to say no as much as... Right. As much as you would in maybe like a more traditional sense of using French, rather. Right. It's more modern to not say na. But would it be along the marketness model, for example? Like it's more marked if you do say na and you're like a certain oh. demographic. Oh. For example, like if I say to Bowden, t'es pas intelligent. But if I say, tu n'es pas intelligent, Bowden, the na would even like add more emphasis to it. It, it can. Bowdoin is intelligent. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, and that's, that's what happens. Don't get mad that, about it. <laughs> you have this concept of, uh, of emphatic negation, and that's where the additional negation 
came in French, the pas was originally just an emphatic addition onto the language. So, so instead of you're not going, you're not going pas literally means a step. So tu ne vas, tu ne vas pas. You're not oh, going uh, a, even a step. Mm-hmm. And you see this hmm. a lot of the times. Actually, what happens in, in French and in most other languages is we emphasize negation with minute items, minute quantities. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't say... I'm not even going to drink a kilo of that. You would say, I'm not even going to drink a drop of that. Okay. You, because you oh, want to yeah. use the small right. item. Right. And huh. so, you know, I'm not going to listen to a second of that speech. I'm not even going to listen to 10 minutes of that speech. Hmm. Implies you are going to listen to a few minutes of it. So it's not truly ne- yeah. negative. Yeah. But if I'm not going to listen to a second of that, you don't mean I'm going to listen to one fourth <laughs> of a second. You know, that's, <laughs> that's stupid. I mean, maybe someone somewhere Unless does. Unless you're but, stubborn but, enough. <laughs> yeah. Right. But in general, you mean I'm not going to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Period. But you're emphasizing what you mean with negation, and it's the same way with the pas in French. And so speaking of the ways of emphasizing the negative in, in French, historically, what were some of the other examples, in a, um, the counterparts to pas? Okay, so pas means step. Um, so what you have is a lot of other small quantities, such as uh, a crumb, which is me, or a drop, which in modern French is goutte, but in old French was gote. Um, and then you have like echelope, which is like... Um, like a little pea, basically, a mm-hmm. type of little pea, different things like that. And um, my old French pronunciation is probably not on point, but it's... Um, well, no one's going to tell you you're wrong. Like is like an almond, so like a small right. nut or something like that. So you're not going to talk about a coconut, but rather a smaller nut, like an almond or something mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Not that I think there's many coconuts in France, probably. But what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got lost. I'm hungry. But so you have this like, um, like uh, ne point is mm-hmm. one that still exists in modern French, though has a bit of a different use than ne pas. Mm-hmm. But point means literally like a dot in writing so I'm oh. not going to even write a dot you're literally just saying I'm not going to write anything at all oh my but God. you're emphasizing it with point right and French is sassy I like it no <laughs> is, this, is this new to you no no no, no, no. I mean I knew but it's so, just re, so re-emphasizing it's a match made in heaven uh, Thank you so much. <laughs> Tommy, I love you already. Thank you so much. He's validating your friends. Validating my sassiness. Absolutely. Yes. So when you're doing this kind of research, what are, what are your sources for this? Well, different corpora are definitely a part of it. For example, I have one called the Dictionnaire d'Autrefois, and it's a corpora mm. that basically takes many different dictionaries used or it's a corpus, rather, that takes many different dictionaries that have been published in the French language over the centuries. For example, the official dictionaries from the Académie Française, but as well as uh, other dictionaries, maybe one published by a religious body, maybe one published by the scientific community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it documents all the words used in there. And so when you look for negation markers in there, you can see when certain ones appear in the dictionary, which obviously it isn't when people necessarily use it, but recognizes that there's some status, someone, some body of people have chosen to recognize it. Then you have maybe a word that disappears and Mm -hmm. stops forming, or even a word that has an entry in the dictionary as a negation, but it is marked as archaic. Right. So you see this trend over time. That's one of the the different types of corpus uh, sources that I use. Nice. Okay. So... Looking at the d- data that you collect on the subject, do you consider the syntactic structure of the phrase more so than like the semantic implication, for example, like the emphasis that the boys um, used earlier? To what extent does the <laughs> syntax play and to what extent does the semantic or pragmatic rather function? There's the there's a little bit of both, realistically mm-hmm. speaking, because with the way pa changed to originally just mean a step and being used in an emphatic sense, it went through a process that's termed grammaticalization. Mm-hmm. And 
in this process, uh, an item basically takes on grammar. Grammar meaning a larger sense of this has a negative sense, or this implies a progressive or a completed sense, something right. like that. Mm -hmm. And so in this particular case, pa took on the grammar of adding negation. Mm -hmm. And so you have to look at both the semantics of it. For pa specifically, you see a lot of examples where the very first uses of it are only with movement verbs. Right. Of course, walking, it makes a sense, but then I'm not going to ride even a step. You might ride on a horse in, in old times or things like that. But eventually you see more varied semantic uses mm -hmm. and that allows you to see this grammaticalization process in person and actually document it and that's kind of what I'm trying to look at find examples of that. So where did this idea originally come from? How did you arrive at this topic in your research? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, Thank you. There's going to be a great <laughs> story on this one. No, it was an no. enlightening where... <laughs> an enlightenment where... It was in Japanese class. And <laughs> one day, early 2010. <laughs> to be honest, one of the... Um, sources of it was not in Japanese class, so to speak, um, but actually when I was looking at the history of the German language, and they have different negations, one that, I, I mean, I, I do not speak German, I put that on the record, but they have one that's like keine and then like nicht or something mm -hmm. like that, yeah. and they mean different things and they're used in different contexts, and I was like, well, that's interesting, and I, I knew French, of course, had like pas and personne and jamais and all mm -hmm. these, and I was looking through some older texts and I'd seen some that weren't used in modern French, and then some that were. And then I, know, I also kind of was thinking about a question that my students asked that I still don't necessarily have a great answer to at this point, which is, une personne means a person, but mm -hmm. ne personne is used as the negation for mm -hmm. nobody. But especially mm -hmm. with no dropping, mm -hmm. personne could mean a person right. or that no ambiguity person. is coming really? back into language mm -hmm. exactly and and that's one of the things with languages it's not math i tell my students that all the time language is not math it's a science but it's more like um you know social science or something uh, it can be very quantitative but it's not a purely mathematical study so you have person and person meaning a person or nobody why was that how did that come to come to pass in the language and that's mm -hmm. kind of what i took a look at and so what are your ultimate Findings. What is the thing that you're gonna get to publish very soon? Like, what's the what's the little? We like to call it. Uh, we're preparing for the job market right now, and in one of the workshops, we call it the golden nuggets of your, of your, <laughs> of your marketing of yourself. Right? Like, you have the one thing. It's like this is the coolest thing about me. This is the coolest thing about my <laughs> research. The coolest thing about my teaching, my service, whatever. What is the, without lack of a better term that I can't think of and on Tommy's, my own? Tommy's golden nugget. What is Tommy's your golden nugget, golden Tommy? Nugget. What's your golden yeah. nugget? I would say the biggest thing that I have probably taken away from my research is just seeing, with the Jesperson cycle specifically, how the negation in French is not static. And this seems obvious on some level, but at the same time, it's not just changing one day people say no, and the next day people say ne pas, and the next day people say pas, but rather this process where there's a gradual change step by step. Mm -hmm. And you get this idea basically that everyone is hearing other people speak, changing the way they speak in response to that, seeing what other people write, changing the way they, they, res they respond or they write based on that. And just the general process of negation in the cyclical change, seeing it kind of progress through the language and also seeing examples of this in other aspects uh, just kind of realizing this overall cyclical nature of language, seeing it in my own native language. I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah, right? It makes me just look at language in a different way. So for my sociophonetics class, I was working with some data about Catalan, and I noticed that they have the um, verb precedent N for the negation. However, they've adapted this pa after the verb, hmm. which doesn't factor into their quote-unquote standard negation pattern 
but the pa has been added for the emphasis and arguably so i'm listening to sociolinguistic interviews and these people in natural speech are employing the pa and taking out the no so i was wondering if you had done any more research into a comparative like from a comparative perspective I have definitely taken a few comparison looks, and Catalan definitely has that. Occitan also mm-hmm. has examples of that as well. Mm-hmm. And you can find a few other cases in various Romance languages. And it's really interesting if you look at the... I'd have to consult the chart to see the exact split, but if you look at the languages that Latin gave gave birth to, so to speak, using the, the mother-daughter language metaphor, right. a lot of them split off into different branches, of course, and then the Romance branch is where French comes from and Catalan and, and Occitan and all that. But for old French split into the Languedoc and Languedoc, mm-hmm. and then you have basically the Languedoc in the south, mm-hmm. where Catalan comes from, and that's actually originally where the pa came from. Right. Because hmm. that's what I was considering, because the speakers I was looking at are from the département in France, where they speak Catalan in Perpignan and in, uh, mm-hmm. Rosello. So I thought, I was wondering if that was like a transfer from, you know, because they have to, well, quote, unquote, have to learn French, but I wonder if they were like transferring that property of the pot into their Catalan. So. Well, that's one of the difficult things with, with historical linguist, uh, linguistics in general is mm-hmm. what is something that was borrowed from another language, what is something that generated itself um, within a language, and oftentimes what you see is you see simultaneous um, generation of a feature in two separate but related languages where it looks like one copied from the other, but in reality, it generated in both of them independently. Right. And this is one of the difficult things with historical linguistics is that we don't have, you know, modern linguistics, if you're studying 2017, you're studying what people are saying right now, there are billions of hours and billions of, of lines of text every day mm-hmm. produced and recorded that at least for the foreseeable future, we'll be able to, to check and access. The year 1131, there's not a lot. Right. You know, there's maybe a few things from the whole year. Certainly nothing spoken. Right. So being able to determine what people did is a little difficult. But that is something I've I've looked at. Mm-hmm. And you do see some copying of the French Nipa into other other languages to a small extent, but it's not as prevalent as you'd think. Mm-hmm. Because in most of those languages what you don't see is that first stage of the Jesperson cycle, which is the weakening of the no or the no or the non or the now or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So without that weakening, there's not necessarily a need to borrow it. But in Catalan and Occitan you do see a bit of weakening and so you will see Nipa or a few other things mm-hmm. um, as well. That's one thing the, the the little bit of historical linguistic stuff that I've done is I've always thought to myself like, man, just imagine like if you had maybe one hour of spoken middle German, it would probably... It would change everything. It would change everything. You know what I'm saying? Just like one little Mm -hmm. tidbit, you know? And that's always the really hard... I think the the hard thing with historical linguistics, there was an article that sometimes gets kind of circulated around on Facebook and stuff about Southern American English is is supposedly closer to the quote-unquote original English that people spoke. Really? When... Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And so there's, there's a lot of... And that's basically just like a... That is a theory that right. people think, right? And so every time that that article gets shared, I want to just like message that person and be like, hey, send me that recording that you <laughs> from Jamestown, what is this, about 1607? Give me that MP3 that you've got where it sounds exactly like, but do you, you know, know what they're saying. How they do that, that though. Right. 
But that's the thing. They do a process called reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at texts that were written around that same time, say, for example, some of the different works of Shakespeare. Now, I'm not a literature person. Couldn't tell you offhand what year year Shakespeare wrote in. But if you look at when he wrote, look at what rhymes. Look Mm -hmm. at what doesn't rhyme. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at vowel reconstruction, things like that, you can determine, this should have rhymed because that fits. So you can determine this is supposed to rhyme with this and this is supposed to rhyme with that. And so they say, okay, well, this must have been the the vowel um, inventory that Mm -hmm. English had at that time Mm -hmm. compared to Southern American English. This is the vowel inventory that we have. Mm -hmm. It's the closest of the North American dialects. Doesn't mean it sounds the same, but if you perform Shakespeare in an an accent of someone from rural Georgia as opposed to an accent from someone from Connecticut, it will sound closer to what it would have sounded like in theory, absolutely. From and, 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 and that's and that's the thing that I'm saying. I'm not saying that 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 way of thinking is completely flawed because I know that you can prove this. And actually, the Globe in London now does performances in because and that was like that was very recent. I think that they started doing that within the last maybe five years or mm-hmm. so um, that they started doing this, where you can actually see performances in what has been what has now been thought of as this is how this is how this stuff sounded exactly by what you're saying by going through rhymes and stuff but and and like and I, i completely i completely agree with that what i was saying is that sometimes when people share that without where people talk about that without knowing like 100% what it is then it becomes like a thing of this is like 100% yeah. as you know like yeah. they they talk about it as a matter of fact instead yeah. of as like from like a theoretical standpoint and yes right. and you're right it is closer but um they're not acknowledging the theoretical yeah and like and and like i said Mm -hmm. i mean god how much would we love if we just had like we are in the all all of us here in indo-european languages Mm -hmm. and we are particularly lucky because we have so so much text whereas let's say you studied hittite right you have a lot less to go on Mm -hmm. you know if so you know that that's one of the things that that we have, in, and in French, especially in romance in general, and Germanic, and, and most of the, the European part of the Indo-European part, especially, and a lot of the Indic part as well, you have so much, mm-hmm. so many documents, so much data to go on, that you you can do reconstruction with a high percent of confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was honestly, that was exemplified back when, um, blanking on the guy's name, but he theorized that there was basically, when he was trying to recreate this like thing of what's now Proto-Indo-European, mm-hmm. the piece that was missing was a fricative, I believe, that mm. it was missing, and he like he knew it was missing, and like his whole kind of like theory hinged on that, and he died not knowing about this fricative, but he always theorized that this fricative, you know, like existed or... Anyway, then in the 1920s, through excavations, is it his? Is it I think that was thing? old Hittite. Okay. I think okay. the fricative was And old. so they literally found that, that oh, fricative yeah. in the language. Was it Hittite or was it Albanian? I, I actually had Albanian in my head too as a possibility. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember. But but but, but, but yeah, basically, sounds familiar. But basically, this whole like his mm-hmm. this whole theory and like it all hinged on him discovering this fricative. But because it had never been excavated, like no one had ever actually seen the text before. Nobody had ever actually looked into it. Then twenty years later, or after his death, someone did, and you know that and the theory now was complete and we wow. he found he found his fricative or whatever that's a great way though. that's how i want my biography to end she found her fricative <laughs> see that's one of the great things about linguistics Aww. is i think it's because language is what we use to communicate i think it's this is cheesy but i like to be cheesy this is mm-hmm. linguistics i think is the science that binds mm-hmm. other things because you're talking about this fricative think of the higgs boson higgs boson particle in mm-hmm. physics recently 
when that was theorized in the '60s, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Higgs died before they ever found it, but they yeah. found it a few years ago with CERN, and it proved to be true. It was a missing piece that, for the model to work, had to have existed. Right. And now they found it, so the model is more complete, but it was only theoretical before. Well, this fricative was theoretical. Now we know it exists or probably mm-hmm. existed, and now we have, you know, a larger model. Yeah. Particularly for your situation. So thus far on the program, we've had uh, six linguists who work with uh, with applied methodologies, and they look at pedagogy and SLA, whereas you're working in a department striving to be the brilliant, you know, historical linguist in a department where we don't explicitly have a faculty that support that or there it's an interest but it's not their focus. So with the exception of Dr. Lightfoot. Well, within French. No, within French, do, within right. French we do not. So I was wondering what what has that experience been like for you? How is that did that pr- proved to be an obstacle? Was it something you could manage or accommodate? I think that uh, in general, it's actually been a really good opportunity for me to have this this obstacle, as you put it, because for my master's, which was in applied linguistics, I did mostly take classes within the French department, by and large. Um, Some were taught in English and open to other people from other departments, but they were through the French department. Mm -hmm. But then for my, my PhD, I actually did have to take classes mostly actually outside of the department. I took several in French, but for example, I took the history of the German language, and as we've clearly established, I do not speak German. Um, I took um, the history of the English language as well, which I learned a lot. I um, have taken courses in anthropological linguistics and other things, and this necessity, because of the way this uh, French department here is structured, has actually really been really has really been really has, <laughs> has been quite enlightening uh, in a sense where it's opened the way I look at language study in a way that just one department would not have been able to allow me to do. I because see. in French, we have a particular way of looking at it. And it's it's the way the faculty teaches. Everyone has their style. And it's really good. And it's really eye-opening th- to learn from each of the different instructors here, or the professors rather here. <laughs> and then um, you go take a course in English with a professor that's different. And it's a totally different style. Yeah. And some of it overlaps, right. of course. I mean, it's the same con- general concepts. But... It's really been a great opportunity for me. Right. Very cool. Well, I'm because I'm going to start kind of embarking down that road next semester. I'm very excited. I'm going to be taking the history of German. So, I'm so excited. There's a book in that class called The Dete Fau, which is mm-hmm. an atlas. It's like a Bible for it's, German. Uh, yeah. It's the most amazing <laughs> book I've ever seen in linguistics. <laughs> Let me tell you, German and their Isogloss, no, their <laughs> Isogloss game is strong. So, I did have another question for you about the field, and it's specific kind of to me because I'm an aspiring historical linguist and you're kind of you're there you got it I'm the old one (laughs) no that's Justin you haven't even started (laughs) okay alright I am go ahead so for example when I introduce myself to other linguists from other schools and we're about to have that bond that Justin mentioned about you know we all suffer together and they say oh what do you specialize in I was like oh well I really like historical linguistics they're like huh good luck with that one because out of all the fields essentially it's the least useful or least applicable. I don't like saying that, though. People have literally said that to my face. They were like, you need to find a specialization B because you're specialized. You are permitted to specialize in historical linguistics, but that's not going to land you the job. I mean, so, I mean, there are people that have to... Anyways, go ahead, Tommy. Well, it's no, a, that's the thing, though. It, it's 
when you look at the jobs on you know on the different sites and the different mm-hmm. repositories and all that there are generalist positions right. that's very common there are positions for literature specialists that are either a particular type of work such as theater or a particular century of work such as 17th century french literature there's all kinds of things like that the positions that specifically are looking for a linguist mm-hmm. not even talking about a historical linguist right. are much smaller mm-hmm. um, the position percentage of those that are historical linguistics is minuscule so having a second specialization as they're saying is basically a job tool you know people go to college for broadly speaking generally either to learn or to make more money mm-hmm. or because they have no idea what they want to do after high school you know right. but if True. you're if you're going there to get a job then yes if that's your main goal then yes you probably should and in the end what most linguists end up doing is they get a generalist position right and then they publish research on what they like to do on what they like to do but they're teaching other things as well mm-hmm. and you know you can ask some of the linguists because we have several linguists in the department especially if you consider Spanish and German as well and others I like to I yeah. mean I like to consider Spanish sometimes <laughs> 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 I mean like not just in the French department but yeah 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 but I mean we have well, every li- once in a while I like to consider Spanish you yeah, know but, but you know <laughs> but we you know we have different linguists and they teach classes like Dr. Lightfoot's historical linguistics class right. but he also teaches other classes now. Right. Now that he's chair, you know, and he's he has the say now. But you know, when <laughs> yeah. you you know are in an department, when you're, when you're in a, an instructor or an assistant professor or an associate professor and all mm-hmm. these things, you teach different things. You may have to teach a literature class, so you need to know some about literature. You may have to teach a cultural class. You know, I right. taught voices in French a few years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not a literature expert, and yet most of what we did in that class was looking at different works, different short stories and film ad- adaptations of them. We did an entire series on the photographs of Jeannot Lapin. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of him before that class, but I was able to teach it, because that's the flexibility you need in the job market. Right. But that's yeah. the coolest, in my opinion, that's the coolest thing about getting a higher degree, whether it be a master's degree, but even more so, like, more refined during a PhD, is you really learn how to critically think. I mean, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if you're taking, like, yeah, obviously, I would probably prefer to teach linguistics, you know, over medieval, like, medieval literature in Spanish, whatever, like, but I can critically think about it. I can, I have the resources and the the cognitive function to be able to like look up articles if I had to give a class in medieval literature and that's the cool thing about a PhD is like you learn how to you adapt to to your surroundings you look at the needs, you assess them, and then you know how to access information. That's Mm -hmm. the coolest thing ever to me and I think whether it be you study linguistics, whether you study literature I think that you can just sell yourself on the basis or market yourself rather on the basis of I know how to access information. I know how to access knowledge. I know how to create knowledge. Who has that skill? I mean, I can literally, we as future PhDs, we will be able to create knowledge and build upon what we know, the the body of work. So is that in the, is that in the game plan for you? Is it, right. you, what are you trying to do once you, you know, conquer that dissertation and you get on that job market? Well, you're already on the job market, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I'm applying for things, certainly. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's, I'm looking at generalist positions. I'm looking at linguistics positions. I'm even looking at and LPD positions, the language program directors. Right. Because in the end, I've had several years of experience now teaching all the way from 101 up through the 300 levels. Mm-hmm. And so seeing the challenges that come coordinating different levels and seeing the, the ability to get homework synced up between the classes and how to handle writing the tests and things like that and figuring out projects and reordering the syllabi and all those things, 
those are skills that we learn as GTAs. And that's one thing that, you know, just someone who was coming in as a graduate student wouldn't have the opportunity for. But luckily in this department, most of the graduate students are also graduate assistants. Mm -hmm. And so they get the opportunity to teach. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think that, you know, you have to bring to the table. You have to present yourself as a flexible person who is capable of teaching and happy to teach 101 you need to get your foot in the door and get that first position mm-hmm. so that the professor that's been there for 5, 10, 15 years doesn't have to teach 101 anymore and they can go teach the 300 level classes and then in a couple of years you get to teach the ones you want and you know you develop that longevity and seniorship or seniority over time but mm-hmm. and just to emphasize a note Tommy is if not the best one of the best instructors that we have in the French department just putting that out there that is not objectively provable. <laughs> <laughs> it is probably based on SOI. Quantify well, it. <laughs> you guys, you guys are pedagogy, like really into pedagogy at all? Or? Yeah. They okay. are all about how, the pedagogy. How much is SOI an accurate oh my God, reflection of a teacher's ability? terrible. Like terrible. any professor will terrible. tell you that it's not a good reflection of the actual work that you put in. Like, I think that it can honestly be, it can be a valuable tool to you as a teacher to sure. know. You know, but honestly, if I'll say this, if in my experience or my what I believe is that if you're waiting until the end of the semester to know Mm -hmm. how your students perceive the way that you taught. Exactly. You need to reevaluate. You wasted a semester before I even knew. Like, I mean, I was here at the university for a while. I remember doing the SOI things or whatever. When it came time for me to teach, I didn't even think that I was going to have an SOI at the end of the semester. But I thought that it was very important to basically one day we came into class and I was just like, okay, everybody take out a sheet of paper and I'm going to give you guys about five minutes and just tell me like things that you like about Mm -hmm. the class, things that you don't like about the class, things that you wish that I would do more if you want me to, you know, do whatever just to get an idea of it. And then I did that three times through the semester. And then by the time that my SOIs came around, I had kind of adapted because it was my first mm-hmm. year teaching and I'd kind of adapted and, you know, kind of negotiated some things to where I was still abiding by departmental guidelines on mm-hmm. my teaching, but I was also making sure that my students' needs were also fulfilled. And mm-hmm. so my yes. SOIs in the semester, I look like the world's best first year German oh, teacher. You know what I'm saying? Like I oh, literally yeah. had like I had the best marks for everything. Today's episode brought to you by <laughs> had, I, had I had I waited until the end of the semester though to right. do that, yeah. I would have I mean, how can you adapt? You know, well, like you, can't, you should you, you should can't get meet everybody's needs when you, know, you got it. You should get feedback. You should get, what I'm saying is you should you should make sure that if you want to do if you want to rely off of that feedback Get it after the first like three weeks. Get it right. after the next and learn and how that's to what read I, it. Yeah, that's what you I've know? done. Yeah. I had like a couple feedbacks, and they were really enlightening. I guess based on how this one particular group of kids interacted. Well, and that's the thing with the well, beauty of language, as opposed to say a math class or something. Right. You know, language is meaningless without others to communicate with. So you need that tool in class. That was deep. Profound. If if you don't mind, just like I, I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit on your experience because you know I'm one of the oldest ones in my department now. Well, and in terms of he's being like, here, like he's like an oak. Oh my goodness! He's okay. the oak. What? Is, always, why is that the theme? All right, so tree sound wave analysis. On <laughs> yes, tree sound wave analysis on Justin. I was going to say if you want to know how somebody spoke that many years ago, just ask Justin. Oh he my was goodness! Here. <laughs> yep. All right. What's that term? Um, yep. yep. <laughs> Anyways, whatever. Uh, so what was your favorite parts? What was your least favorite part about being a graduate student? Since you're almost done. I mean, you got yeah, you have one semester. Yeah, that's semester that's exciting. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, my most favorite part of being a graduate student, I think, is just getting to meet all the different people that are here. It's a cheesy answer, but it's it's real because you meet people that are... In academia, everyone is so focused on their individual topics and so passionate about what they want to study. Some people, they don't know it right off the bat, but they figure out what they want to study and they just, they love it so much. They do so much research. You dedicate literally years of your life to a topic and getting to meet these people, you basically are exposed to parts of the world you have never met or would never imagine. Like I've met people from 30 plus different countries in this department at the University of Alabama. And it's really been eye-opening. You know, professors that have gotten their degrees in the 2000s or the 90s or the 80s from France or from Canada or from um, someone who worked in India for several years, my anthropological linguistics professor, he had done his dissertation research in India and, you know, all this different stuff. And you're exposed to so much that you would never have the opportunity for outside of grad school. And it's super sappy to say, but I feel like when I meet another grad student, like if it's like in a different like program here at the university, or if I'm like just out and I'm, I meet somebody new and they're like a grad student from a different university or whatever, I feel like a bond with them. Like, Oh, we're going through kind of similar stuff together and I can like relate to you on such a, like a, in such a way that you would not be able to relate to, for example, friends outside of grad school or yeah. family in a yeah. sense if they didn't go to grad school. Well, I, think, know? I think people when they're forced into an impoverished lifestyle tend to, <laughs> I mean, they tend to bond. They tend to have well, you know solitary. Did you know that the, the deal at Target it's like ten pack of ramen for four ninety nine? Oh my god. You Good to know. Get that. Good to know. You better no. go get that. But um no but there is definitely a bond. And like sharing little things like, oh did you know we get Microsoft Office for free? You know, did you get the phone shop? Me like that, that we get what was it? Uh, Adobe. Adobe. So that creative we have, cloud. We have access cloud. to the entire creative cloud as graduates. I didn't like know that. I, I had no idea. And like honestly, mm-hmm. I've gone from I've gone from printing my articles, and I thought that I would never get past having print, to have a, a printed out you know version. What I'm like mm-hmm. I thought I would never get past that. Now I do everything. I do everything um, through uh, Adobe Acrobat Pro because you yeah. can, you can highlight, right. you can circle, you can write, you can you can even go in and match the text and delete things if you want mm-hmm. and put and your own words into and it. And Tommy was the one who told me about Microsoft Office through, you know. Yeah, and it's a small thing, but I mean, Office is like a hundred, two hundred dollars for the different versions, and you're in grad school, you need access to PowerPoint and Excel and Word right. and all these things. And Oh, yeah, and, I'm not going to pay for that. Right, I mean, you, and you know, so you, you have free access to that. I've got a, a box of documents at home that are articles from my classes that I took in like 2011, 12, 13, whatever, that I still need to come in and scan so I can have them in PDF forms. Oh. Because am I going to ever go look through, you know, 14 binders of 14 mm-hmm. different yeah. classes mm-hmm. I took four years ago? No, of course not. So mm-hmm. I need to get them scanned into PDFs, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the strongest. Okay, well, on that note, you guys, we will be right back in just a moment to hear a little bit more about the life lessons that Tommy has to share with us. Be right back. So this brings us to the last portion of our show, which is called Lessons Learned. Mm-hmm. You were able to go back and tell 2012 bright-eyed Tommy looking forward to this PhD program. Aww, bright-eyed Tommy. <laughs> if you could... He, he who means? means? I don't know. Bowden means. Bowden means that the, the light in your eyes has died. 
No, I didn't. Bright eyed. I can see the light. I can see the light. No, apparently Justin can see the light. He's the one who's dying. What? What? At the end of the tunnel, there's the light. Well, I was about to make a metaphor about how I can actually see the light again at the end of the tunnel, but now I'm not. Now <laughs> the tunnel is well, death. So getting the the tunnel is death. You've died. It's which yeah. tunnel you take. Well, are there signs? So, <laughs> I mean, this is good, important information. So is there something that if you could go back and you could tell yourself that would be really beneficial, something that you learned along the way, some type of skill that you picked up that would have made your life as a PhD student easier, what would that be? As... It's probably clear from this podcast I'm a very long-winded person, so I could literally give myself hours of advice. But if I had to sum it up in you know, <laughs> a single sentence, I would say you know that from the very first semester that you are in the PhD program, be planning to finish the PhD program. And what I mean by that is, you know, from the very beginning, you're here to get a doctorate, to learn a topic, to research the topic to death, and then get a job after that. While you're here, from the very first semester, you need to be thinking about a year from now, what conference are you going to present this research at? A year from now, what stage of your dissertation? Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, you mm-hmm. talk about December's, you've got this plan to, to work on your data yeah. or something. You have a plan. Right. I mean, you, you know what you're doing. I have always been a fairly fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of person when it came to school, and it worked fine in undergrad, and it even worked fine in the master's program, but it's kind of um, you know, caught like up that. with me. That's fine. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> maybe that's advice for you. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I've kind of adapted that I'm, 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 I've, I've adapted the title. Robin gave it to me. I'm going to be a messy academic. A messy yeah. academic? Uh, like I'm going to be a professional messy academic. And what, is, it's a good what am thing I going to be? be? I can't tell. Well, no, I mean, go ahead, Tommy. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I'm just, you know, it's a good thing to, to do to be able to improvise like that and to be able to, you know, ad lib in the middle of class if you forget your lesson plan or you bring the wrong binder or something. It's good to be able to do that. But for the bigger picture, you do need to have more structure. And that's something that I would, I think, tell myself is that you need to make sure that you've got a plan, mm-hmm. know your conferences, be working on your CV. Don't start to work on your CV when you're going to start applying for jobs. Make your CV with empty spots on it for everything on your first day of your PhD program. Yeah. And then fill in things as you go oh, along. As you That's go. I love, I love doing that. Like, I, like I have mine I saved. I have mine saved on the box. And mm-hmm. I just love, like, when I do something mm-hmm. and I get it done, I'm, like, going home, getting on box. It's like a little reward. Like, like a little treat to yeah, myself. Yeah. Like, do you remember the other week? That was a motivation. I said, I literally said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to add this conference to my CV, and then I'm going to get to work. It was great. (laughs) I like to put a conference on there that I'm going to, like, I've been accepted to it, and I'm like, expected, 2019 or something like that. And then then you change it when you get to And that feels so good. Just taking off the expected. Mm -hmm. And I have expected for my graduation date, May 2019. Oh, my God. It's going to feel so good when I get to delete that expected. You're graduating at the same time. You guys are Wait, did you say 2019? May 2019 is when I graduate. Yeah, you're no, I'm going for 2018. Next, next May 2018. If I'm here in 2019, we got different problems. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm here oh, in 2020, uh, we got well, different sure, problems for me too. But that's a whole different scenario. Whole different you know. scenario, right? Well, on that note, uh, oh, Tommy, wait, we, we got one more thing. What? We got you, a hashtag. What, I, I was just about to do the hashtag. You were, it sounded like you were just about to end the episode. <coughs> that, no? I thought he was done. Right? Yeah, I, I thought, thought you were about to get up. No. Like, I was fine. I, I was like, great job, really Tommy. I'm done here. Is that okay? Sorry? It's a really cheesy hashtag and sure. explanation. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wait, yeah. let me just ask the question. Is it, so, like, is it, is it hashtag fromage? That's cheesy. It's cheesy. It's cheesy. How do you say cheesy, though? Anyways, so Tommy, we... need to. you need to start again. So, Tommy, uh, 
thank you so much for everything. It's been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, you are very welcome. Um, we just have one well, last question. We like to ask this question to everybody that comes on. Uh, we like to ask you if you could provide us with a hashtag that pretty much sums up, like, it could be about your research or it could be about your experience in grad school just in general. Um, a hashtag for you specifically. So, what have been our hashtags in the past, guys? Well, I don't Justin's remember. is the most well-known. Hashtag what? Like, W-U-T. Pretty much. It was hashtag yeah. meat grinder. Oh, yeah. Hashtag meat grinder hashtag. with Sarah. Explore your passion. Explore your passion. Uh-huh. Um, goals. Hashtag goals. Hashtag goals with Alicia. Uh, what would you say is your hashtag, Tommy? It may require a tad bit of explanation, but I would say hashtag stranded in the desert. Ooh. Okay. Stranded in the stranded desert. Stranded in the desert. I already relate to it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was about to say. So stranded in the desert. What do you mean by that? Okay, so when you're in the desert, if you are stranded there suddenly, magically, I don't know, somehow... You think that you're alone. You think that you're the only person there. But in reality, you're not. There are other people. There are other animals there. I think that's scarier. (laughs) 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 But that's the thing, though. Some of them are challenges you have to overcome. Uh Obstacles you have to get over. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's mirages. Something you think (coughs) is one way but actually works a different way. And this is very true for being in grad school in general. Something else happens in the desert is sometimes there's also buried treasure you might come across. So... You know, you might come across something that you never thought you would expect. Like for me, the anthropological linguistics course was a buried treasure, so to speak, because no, it wasn't like my best work in that class. And no, I didn't understand everything in that class as well as I could have if I'd had more of a background. But it was um, an amazing find. Wow. Okay. So just well, that's stranded in the desert. There's so many metaphors yeah. there. I mean, you, have, well, you have like a, like, a, like an oasis. You have, I mean, there's mirage. And that's, that's, yeah. that, that's such a good one. And when you, you oh, know, yeah. you're in high school, well, you're yeah, on a like path. Yeah. You're in co- undergrad even. There's some options, but you're still on a path. Hmm. But when you get to graduate school, you chose to go there. Most people don't have graduate degrees. This you're is true. You chose to be here. And you can go in any direction you want with it. You pick your dissertation topic in most cases. You pick your field of study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was much better than the hashtag I had envisioned for this episode. So, What did you envision, Robin? Golden nugget. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> hashtag golden nugget. I was thinking hashtag Chef Boyardee. <laughs> hashtag Chef Boyardee. But Chef... Anyways, Tommy, thank you so much for coming on. We've had a great time talking to you. It was an awesome episode, guys. Thank Uh, you for having me on. All right, guys. Well, we will see you next time. Magic carpet. I'm in the desert. Uh,